0: I don't know if you're aware of it, but we've been working through the book of Hebrews, Sunday mornings. This is part 44. Let me just do a quick review of the first 44. The title is Faith in Invisible Things. How Spiritual Understanding is Formed how spiritual understanding is formed. We're going to look at the first seven verses of Hebrews 11. So we're, we're working our way through. We're getting into the home stretch. Hebrews 11, 1 to 7. I hope you have a Bible of some kind with you in church. 11, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And this chapter is going to be about that. Here's the phrase in the third verse. I want to talk about this. Right there. Do You see it? So the title is, How Spiritual Understanding is Formed. By faith we understand. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Kind of a great way to go, isn't it? And it's hard to figure out how his faith has to do with that. It says God just took him. But then he explains, now before he was taken... He was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. We usually just quote that verse by itself. But it's talking about Enoch. He pleased God, so we know he had faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household and by this he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith let's just pray by faith we understand verse 3 says We want, Father, to have our eyes enlightened, our hearts more and more inclined toward deep faith and confidence in our God. And this chapter was designed to bring spiritual understanding through faith. Truth be told... Many of us come into church more aware of our needs than our strengths, more aware of our fears than our confidence, more aware of our loss than our gain, and so how we need you, O mighty one, to lift up your flock, shepherd your church. Draw us to yourself. Incline our hearts and minds toward you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The phrase I want to launch this study with is found at the beginning of verse 3. I kind of highlighted it. By faith, right there. By faith we understand. Just pause before moving on to the rest of the text. We'll, we'll come back to all of it. And the reason I want to start with that phrase is it it seems so counterintuitive to today's worldview. When you think of understanding, you think science and education are the things that bring understanding. Faith is reserved for the things no one should be dogmatic about in our culture. Faith is for the things we don't understand. Faith is for the things we can't understand. Or, or maybe we should say it differently. Faith is, faith is sort of for privately held religious opinions. People of faith. Any faith. And that's why numerous people of faith, they can hold vastly different ideas about God and about religion, and we're all fine with that because, well... Those are just matters of faith. You got yours, I got mine. Facts, on the other hand. Well, that's different. Like mathematics. Like driving on the correct side of the road. I mean, facts have to be universally acknowledged, and those holding different ideas are simply wrong. Three and three, Is six. If everyone in this room thought it was seven, it would still be six. And we would all be mistaken. That's what facts are like. So the opposite of fact is error. Whereas in our tolerant culture, the opposite of faith is simply another faith or a different faith, or no faith. No harm done. And then we come into this surprising phrase in this text. And the writer has the audacity to say that faith, actually one particular faith to boot. Faith brings soundness of understanding. Faith, not science, not math. Faith. And the kind of mental soundness he's talking about, we're going to see, it includes things like the beginning of time, the creation of the world, the seriousness of sin, the judgment of God, the essentialness, the essentiality of knowing God, and the only proper way to come to God and know God. And, and, and the implication of this text is there's no proper understanding of anything important Without faith. That's a culturally stunning statement. The Bible. This, this uh, wildly outrageous revelation from God. Is constantly doing that. It simply ignores our tastes. And dares us to believe what it's saying is true. The more I studied this chapter, the 11th chapter, the, the more I, I became convinced that it isn't just sort of a randomly assembled collection of faith heroes. There's a, at least a rough chronological order flowing through the chapter. It begins with a definition of faith in general terms, and, and uh, then quickly divides, divides itself into four blocks of revealed history. First, it traces the world from creation up to Noah. That's what we're looking at today. Secondly, it zeroes in, for the most part, on the calling and the offspring of Abraham. And then third, with a few exceptions, it gives more detail to Moses and those who followed Moses. And then finally, it kind of wraps up anonymously with this group of people who who it says persisted in faith when all it brought them was persecution and death and they just hung in there. Don't even know who they are. Happens today. So today we're going to work our way through verses 1 to 7. Point number one. Faith deals with things unseen, not things unreal. You see it in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So, assurance. And it's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their, their commendation. So, so, while faith itself is invisible... And by that I mean faith in God or faith in absolutely anything else. While that faith is invisible, you can see the effects of faith in, in people who exercise it. That's the meaning of that last sentence. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. We, we will see the fruit of faith in all of those listed in the following examples. And the writer is kind of setting us up. To notice that. So faith deals, with, faith deals with things unseen. But not things unreal. Well, that's the problem with you Christians. You know, you, you spend all your time pretending. When I say faith is in things unseen, not in things unreal, I don't just mean religious faith. I mean faith trust everybody everybody puts trust in things unseen what color is fear have you ever felt fear anybody in the room ever felt fear is it triangular have you ever seen it Anybody in the room ever seen fear? Nobody has. You all believe in it. (laughs) Who has ever seen love or joy? We've seen people do loving things. But those are the outward effects of love. I'm not talking about that. We've seen people do joyful things. We've seen smiles, laughter, songs, whistled tunes. But those are all the outward effects of joy. No one's ever seen joy. We feel fear and love and joy first. We express them. And it's, and it's the expression of those things that's visible. So truth be told, this... Unseen realm is not exclusive to religious people. Everyone on Earth knows what it is to give evidence or to give substance to unseen realities. That's absolutely unavoidable living in this world, for everybody, the atheist and the saint. So our, our writer's point, though, is, is a bit different. Stay with me here. The point in verse 1 is that since the fall into sin, okay, what happens automatically with those other invisible things, the way we accept them all just naturally, the way, the, what happens automatically with, with emotions like fear and love and joy, it has to be. Consciously exercised. It has to happen consciously in invisible spiritual realities because our fallen reflex, our natural response to the invisible things of God is to repress them. It's not that these spiritual realities aren't there or can't be sensed. The problem is, since the fall, we are all naturally disinclined to acknowledging some invisible realities while we embrace a host of other ones. That's the problem. We who place trust in and express involvement in the existence of a thousand invisible things every day, we reject a few invisible This is the darkness from which our minds need redeeming. This is, this is the great uh, untangling of our inner selves. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the situation faith has to confront. It's the situation faith has to change. Now, let me talk about this just for a minute more. Hebrews 11.1 1, Sort of describes the finished product of a living faith. It talks about the assurance right there. It talks about the conviction right there. The assurance of faith, the conviction of faith. It shows us the product of a mature faith in God. But there are other passages in the New Testament that, that don't talk about just the finished product. But how, how, how does that faith get formed? How does this happen? If, if, if the nature of the fall is such that it causes us to reject a selected slice of invisible realities while embracing a whole bunch of them. If that's our problem, this disinclination to faith and trust in God... How how does the Holy Spirit gradually come into Don Horban and and fix this? Untangle this? And there are some clues that we get in the scripture. The process of this renewed understanding. Let, Let me just look at a couple. Are you still with me? Romans 8. This is a great text. For we know, isn't it interesting? Hebrews 11.1 1 is going to start talking about creation in just a minute. We didn't quite get there, but it's going to. We know that the whole, here it is, creation, same thing. This is what it's doing. <laughs> right there. Groaning. In the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, capital S, we groan inwardly as well as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters. The redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved, hope that is seen, remember Hebrews is going to talk about faith in things unseen, assurance of things unseen, conviction of things unseen. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's a long text. I'm not preaching on that text. I just want you to notice one thing. It's not complicated. One of the things the Holy Spirit does with the things we do not see, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is is the implanting The implanting of the first fruits. Right there. The first fruits of the Spirit. We don't see everything, but you have this implanting of the first fruits of them right now in our our hearts. That's in verse 23. It's not the entire substance, it's not the final product. But we're talking about how this understanding of faith gets formed in fallen hearts like ours. And the Holy Spirit comes and implants just the first fruits. It's like a taste. Not the entire product. Not the whole end result. I'm I'm afraid of worship courses that sometimes lead us in songs and singing like we have the redemption of the bodies right now and everything's going to be great and wonderful. No, no. You don't have a redeemed body yet. You got one that gets sick. You got one that dies. But you have the first fruits. Like, Like the first fruits of a harvest. It's not the whole crop. But it is a portion of what is to come. And so the Holy Spirit quickens hope around the prospect of still invisible things that are in the future. But you have a foretaste of them. You couldn't do it yourself. The Holy Spirit gives you the first fruits. Here's another description of the same process. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So, we do not lose heart. If anybody had reason to lose heart, it was Paul. You read his life and you just think, Paul, what's with your head? Though our outer self... This is the part you see, by the way. Look in a mirror. Wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. How does that happen? One thing we know already from Romans. You have the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? We just studied that. The first fruit of the Spirit... Plants a seed of still invisible things, but you have a foretaste of them. That's one way it happens. Here's another our inner self is being renewed day by day. How? For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look. This is we, this is not God, this is us. As we look not To the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is an amazing text. I mean, Paul actually describes Christian people, and he says they are looking at invisible things. You have an inward first fruits produced by the Spirit, and you look at... Future things, still invisible things in faith. You set your heart, you set your attention on them. So these people, Paul says, are are gazing directly at things no one can see. It's another way of saying what Paul said in Romans 8 about the Holy Spirit implanting the first fruits of these things. We're already tasting them. We're already looking at them. We're already seeing them. So I did that little diversion into those two texts. Because Hebrews, when you start into chapter 11, it just talks about, boy, having this confidence, this assurance, this conviction. How does that happen? And I want to see exactly what the Bible says about how that starts to happen. Pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Set more time and attention on looking at future things. Orient yourself toward them. In words very much like the Apostle Paul that we just read, this is our writer's way of picking up the thread of logic. Because if you finished Hebrews 10, before you got to Hebrews 11, as you wrapped up chapter 10, here's what you would read. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. That's future. You don't see it yet. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, this is a quote, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That last sentence is the important one. We we are not. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And how faith does this. How does faith preserve the soul... Well, that's what he launches into in Hebrews 11.1. One. Faith gives present substance to still unseen future rewards. Faith pulls invisible realities into the present realm and gives them weight and influence. Point number two. The foundational understanding of faith, where it starts... Is the creation and establishing of this visible world out of nothing by the divine word of God. Look at Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand, that's the phrase I was looking at. That the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So, so, the world, read Romans 1, the world we all see is certainly visible. It declares the glory of God. But, says our text, it wasn't created out of things you can see. That's amazing, isn't it? This visible ...world that everyone can see that declares the glory of God... ...was made out of nothing visible. Nothing you could see. It came from nothing. And it came by the creating power of God's word. Something visible from nothing at all. Why start there? He's going to talk about people after this. People of faith. And we need to kind of see the logic of this chapter... The reason our writer begins with faith's understanding of creation is this. What this truth does is it sets in motion a dynamic, a pathway for understanding other important truths. By faith we understand. Verse 3. So, faith in creation as the cause Of all that is, it it gives us an understanding, it gives us a proper foundation for all the other purposes and plans of God that are still in the future, that seem equally impossible as something as big as this universe coming out of nothing at all. Do you see what he's doing? What did you bring to church today? What is it that looks impossible that you're believing God for, trying to believe God for? And everything in you just says, that's not going to work. I come to the front every time they have prayer for needs. I'm still the same. That's not going to work. I got friends praying for these unsaved loved ones. it's not going to work. You don't know the diagnosis I just got from the doctor. That, pff, that's not going to work. And, and, and this writer would say, you need, to, you need to have an understanding that's rooted in whatever need you have right now. And I'm not saying every prayer is answered. I'm not saying every problem disappears. But I'll tell you what I am saying. I'm saying what this chapter is teaching us is whatever, whatever it is you're bringing to the Lord, whatever it is you're bringing in that sick body, And when faith kind of slags and grows cold and uphill and difficult, you need to remind yourself that 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 body that you are praying for a miracle in and healing for is the same body that our God created out of absolutely nothing. Is your need more demanding than that? So, so the design here is it's, it's not just poetic. It's not just accidental. By faith we understand that everything you see around you, God made just by speaking it into existence. Frame everything else. By faith we understand. We understand. I have this in my mind. Faith in creation as the cause of all that is gives that understanding a good solid foundation. Considering the beginning of creation gives a logical framework to considering the conclusion of this created order, the establishment of God's new creation when Christ Jesus returns, when all is made new. See, I know... That God will raise all of these bodies. God will raise my dad. From the dust of the ground. Because he made mankind. From the dust of the ground in the first place. It frames the understanding. This is how faith thinks. God. Finishes what God starts. Faith must begin where God begins. Took too long on that. Sorry. Point number three. Because God is creator of all. He alone decides how he will be approached and worshipped. And you come to these tricky verses. I want to talk about them. 11.4 By faith, Abel offered to God. It says a a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. This he, by the way, is Abel that it's talking about. God commending him by accepting God commending him by accepting his gifts. And though And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Let me talk about this for a minute. The challenging part of this text is it assumes, it assumes some kind of instruction of which we have no record in the biblical text. So when I come to a hard text, this is just the way I work. When I come to a hard text, I always start by asking the text, questions. And so I read this and I say, where did Cain and Abel ever get the idea to bring offerings to God? Because their parents never did. Go through Adam and Eve. There's, There's no sacrifices, no offerings, no instructions about it. Nothing. And all of a sudden you have Cain and Abel and they're bringing offerings. There are no surrounding nations from which to borrow the concept of animal sacrifice. So the arguments of Brian Zond and Greg Boyd fly out the window at this point. There's nobody to copy. It's Cain and Abel. We have no record of Adam and Eve bringing offerings to God. So so my assumption is, somewhere along the way, God gave instruction about offerings and sacrifices to Cain and Abel. We also know We know God preferred Abel's offering to Cain's. That part's easy because the text just says so. We don't have to guess there. But there's something else. We also know that Cain knew God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not his own. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, he killed him because of his jealousy. So somewhere along the line, in details not recorded, all of this was known in the parties involved. And so, our writer of Hebrews, he crafts this 11th chapter pretty carefully. Faith begins with establishing the rightful rule, the rights of a God who creates everything that exists. He has rights over. And our writer moves immediately from creation to to the very first revelation in the Bible of acceptance and rejection of the creator God's pattern for worship. Faith, if if it's to be sound in understanding, it rests fully on, this is what we're being taught here, Faith rests fully on God's right to decide how he will be approached. Like he doesn't do surveys. He doesn't do opinion polls. We don't get a vote. He, he just decrees because it's his creation. Here is how I shall be approached by those who approach me. So make no mistake, from the text, it certainly seems that Cain was at least as sincere as Abel in bringing his offering, but this is not where faith places emphasis. The issue isn't sincerity, the issue is obedience. So, so Cain's offering could, at best, celebrate God as provider and giver of the fruit of the ground, which is true enough. Abel's is accepted though, and Cain's isn't. Why? Because Abel's offering centers on the shedding of blood and God as redeemer, not just provider. So, Abel's sacrifice, early in the biblical account, points to what would become the pattern for the entire Old Testament, the Old Covenant. What would be established as the pattern of acceptance of sinful people with a holy God. It would always demand the shedding of blood. The world would be for generations simply getting ready for the Lamb of God. One more thing. And this is important. Our cultural mindset hates this narrow approach. To this day, as much as Cain hated Abel. Our culture constantly usurps God's revelation as it creates its own criteria for religious faith and devotion. And the hatred for God's demand... For approaching him through the shed blood of Christ alone, that hatred is as strong today as when Cain slaughtered Abel out of the very same resentment. It's exactly the same in the world today. Where sacrifice for sin is rejected, Cain lives in the professing church. Point number four why the faith of Enoch matters. And what his faith predicted. So now we're looking at verses 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken. Taken up. So that he should not see death. And he was not found. Because God had taken him. Now before he was taken. He was commended as having pleased God. And without faith. This is his way of saying. Enoch had faith. Without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I said earlier, I think it's necessary to hold these verses together, 5 and 6. Because it's hard to see what being just taken up. I mean, Enoch didn't do that himself. What that has to do with his faith. And so the writer keeps going in verse 5, saying that he pleased God, and then in verse 6 he makes the point where you can't please God without faith, so Enoch had faith. But why Enoch? Why is he here in this account? Jude tells us that Enoch was a prophet, Jude 14 and 15. But the way he left this world, it points to something more than that. And I think there are two important things to remember about Enoch being taken with his faith. A The same quality of faith can bring very different results. Think about it for a minute. Right before Enoch who is talked about. It's a trick. Abel Okay, we just looked at Abel. I know, it was four minutes ago. (laughs) Abel and his great faith, what happens to Abel? He's murdered. Enoch and his great faith, what happens to Enoch? He's taken up to heaven. Same faith, different results. There's the lesson. (laughs) Don't we live in a world that just looks at whatever great miracle happens in your life and says, oh, there's faith. Enoch's faith takes him directly to glory without seeing death. Abel's faith leads to his murder. It's always a dangerous thing to measure faith by earthly ease and prosperity. But B, secondly, Enoch provides this powerful testimony to to the, the... The physicality of existence in God's eternal presence. This is the value of the two accounts of, say, Enoch and Elijah. They're different from the many resurrection accounts in the Old and New Testament. I'm not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. I'm just talking about people who were raised from the dead in the Old and the New Testament. The accounts of Enoch and Elijah are different because all those people who were raised from the dead, they died again. So these resurrections recorded in various biblical accounts tell us nothing about the permanent condition of these temporarily re- resurrected bodies. But Enoch... Enoch is, is a vivid picture of a whole person, body and all, in the presence of God. And you get this very, very early Old Testament picture which will be, of course, fleshed out in the resurrected body of Jesus that came out of the grave and ate fish with the disciples. There is real, solid, eternal life in God's kingdom. Five. We're almost done. The understanding of faith perceives a warning to proclaim... And a judgment to fear. You'll see it in Hebrews 11, chapter 7. By faith, Noah, being warned, there it is, by God concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, this is that, constructing the ark. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Have you ever considered the significance of Noah's faith? Let me me just try and reveal something maybe fresh to you a little bit. There was a lot riding on Noah's obedience. Because everyone but Noah's family would be destroyed in the flood. Okay, So except for Noah's family, the population of the earth, mankind, became extinct. In the flood. And but for Noah's faith, the seed of the promised Messiah would be gone forever. You have a Redeemer, you have a Redeemer. Because Noah built an ark. It matters. You have a redeemer. Because Noah built an ark. And preserved the race. Noah embraced the revelation of coming judgment. That looked irrational. And looked impossible. And no one else. Respected the judgment theology of Noah. He held to his very unpopular conviction. And to this day, the biblical revelation of divine judgment has not found mass cultural reception, even in the church. Noah stayed with the same assignment of obedience for scores of years. Some scholars say 120 years building an ark. There's a calling. No power tools. Power tools are for wusses, aren't they? Seriously. 120 years. What I'm saying is this, this kind of faith commitment, it can't be sustained just by emotional energy. No one had ever built an ark before Noah. No one had ever seen an ark. No one knew what it was. You couldn't show anybody a picture of an ark. apart from the instruction from God, you, 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 you might as well say you were building a UFO. On top of that, there was no rain falling, no water in sight. Moses built what no one had ever heard of for no apparent reason, and he did it for 120 years. And it, of course, it all played out exactly as God had warned, the cultural unacceptance of divine judgment Didn't keep it from happening. It won't again. And the Apostle Peter, he felt compelled to remind the New Testament church about this. Here's the words of Peter. False prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among, there will be. Read that sentence carefully. There will be. False teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. This is not denying Jesus. This is not denying Jesus. This is denying Jesus who bought them. It's, it's the sacrifice on the cross. Okay, Not the existence of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, blessed are the meek, love one another. Not that Jesus, that's fine. But the one who bought them, who died on the cross for your sins bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many, many will follow their sensuality. and Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. These are strong words. They're in your Bible. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, cast them into... See it? It's right there, folks. Cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Goes through all of that. So, so there will always be false teachers who soften those words. And Peter reminds the church, the scoffers in Noah's day did the same thing. And they're gone, every one of I have one closing thought. It's my last page of notes. Take a deep breath. Consider for a moment the way the New Testament, the way that the King James, the way it words this same verse. Let me just read it to you. By faith, I think I put it in my notes too. You can see it. By faith, Noah, Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, it says, moved with godly fear. The old King James says, Noah, moved with fear. Moved with fear. Built an ark. This is the last thing I want to advocate. Especially to those in an environment that's hostile to your allegiance to Christ. Are you... Uh, Are you a university student? Are you a career person? A college person? A high school student? Only Christian at work? Only Christian in your home? Your faith will never stand if it remains in your head as a doctrine. You will never stand long on a passive foundation of faith. That's why I like that, the way it says, Noah, by faith, moved, moved in godly fear, moved in godly fear to build an ark. Faith only works when it moves you. Cool, when I was a kid, cool was an expression and it's kind of made a comeback. Things are cool again. But you can't be cool and follow Jesus. You have to be red hot. Your faith only works when it moves you, when it drives you. That's the test. Faith won't let you stand still and it won't let you be silent. Trying to hold your faith silently and passively is like trying to sit on a bicycle and not pedal. It's designed to move. Faith, Noah-like faith, always moves the person possessing it. It, it it drives you in life. There's, there's always something divinely compelling in living faith. It isn't something you have in church or something you download from your parents. You are personally moved by your faith. It involves you in Christ as Lord. It, it's an active force driven by the Spirit of God Himself. It will never leave you on the sidelines. It always takes God. Dreadfully seriously, joyfully, but dreadfully seriously. Like Noah, it it constructs whatever life of obedience God requires and it never quits. It treasures Christ more than anything else. And it's vocal about it, it's visible about it, it's passionate about it, it's always moving your life in a certain direction. It's never standing still. Is that you? Is that you? There is something wonderful about loving Christ passionately like that. Faith embraces. It was, uh, I don't think it's a bad personal story. Came into the kitchen, Rini's in the kitchen, she's working on some stuff. I came into the kitchen... And uh, put my hands on her shoulders, turn her toward me, and we hug. Okay? We just hug. Probably for 30 seconds. I don't know what she was working on, but she let go, and she starts to go back to what she was doing. And I said, no, I'm not finished yet. And I don't mean to be sappy, but but just right at that moment, right at that moment, I felt like, you know, outside of the Lord, just, just about everything I need for joy is right here. Just about everything I need to make my life complete is right here. That's That's what faith does in a relationship with Christ. It's not that there aren't other things. But there aren't other things that matter like that. Faith moves you. It drives you. It compels you. We're going to look at other examples. No wonder. You can see why, Paul says, and and the shield of faith with which you quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Because if you have everything in Christ, and he means everything to you, then what's vulnerable about your life? Be a person of strong faith. And let, let the culture around you know where you stand. And never budge an inch.